Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. It's Monday, December 25th, 2017, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at inquiring.show, on Twitter at Inquiring Show, and on Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. So do you have any plans for this week? Or have you been surrounded by family? I have been surrounded by family. I'm continually being surrounded by family. So do you ever wonder if any of them have psychopathic tendencies? Uh, <laughs> or how about exceptional altruism? Nah. In the spirit of giving? <laughs> no comment. Well, I always thought those two things were actually very different, the psychopath and the altruist. But it turns out that this week's guest actually thinks that they are in some ways cut from the same cloth, albeit maybe on the same spectrum at opposite ends of it. This week, I interviewed Abigail Marsh, who's an associate professor of psychology and neuroscience at Georgetown, and she directs its prize-winning laboratory on social and affective neuroscience. She started her work at the NIH, in which she did research on child psychopathy. Child psychopathy? Are we talking yeah. like Kevin McAllister from Home Alone? <laughs> um, well, well what, what's the character in South Park that like is just... Cartman. Yeah, maybe someone more like that. <laughs> um, so obviously, this is something that uh, a lot of parents worry about, you know, at what point is their child showing psychopathic behavior versus just some kind of other behavioral disorder or not listening. And it's very scary, I'm sure, as a parent, if your child is going through a tantrum that turns violent. And what do you do? And you often hear of these stories of these sort of violent kids who don't necessarily come from homes in which they were abused or neglected, but, you know, rather just somehow snap. And we're not talking about just pure violent tendency. It's also their ability to handle and process emotions and be able to connect with other people and read emotions from other people. Yeah. And that's what Abby really thinks is the missing link between people who have who show exceptional altruism and people who might be on the other end of the spectrum and show traits of psychopathy. Now, I should note that it's not right to really call a child a psychopath, um, because of course, we don't know that that's helpful. A lot of children who show psychopathic tendencies grow out of them. And, you know, the label can be very damaging. But um, Abby recently put out a book called The Fear Factor. And she talks about how the emotion of fear and how we process fear and how we empathize with other people's fear can really be the key to understanding altruism and psychopathy. And it's not as simple as you think. 
It's not that people with psychopathy don't feel fear. They don't really feel that other people feel fear. (laughs) Say that 10 times fast. And on the other side, you would think, well, the person who is altruistic, maybe they just don't have any kind of fear. But in fact, there too, you have the opposite pattern where the person who shows exceptional altruism also might show exceptional empathy to someone else's fear. So let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with Abigail Marsh. Welcome to Inquiring Minds, Abigail Marsh. Thanks for having me. So I want to start out by having you tell our listeners a little bit about your experience the first time that you met a person who was sort of on the spectrum for psychopathy as a child. And of course, I won't call them a psychopath because you tell us not to. <laughs> so but but I want to give the the listeners a sense of what it was like, what you were expecting and what you got the first time that you met a, a child who had a conduct disorder, as you call it. Exactly. Yeah. So um, certainly he had conduct disorder, lots of aggression and antisocial behavior. Uh, and, you know, we say psychopathic personality traits. Mm. Um, so we had heard a lot about him before we met him the first time. Uh, I was working at the National Institute of Health as a postdoctoral researcher, and we had just started uh, what was to be uh, the first brain imaging study on adolescents who are psychopathic, which puts them at pretty high risk for growing uh, up to become adult psychopaths. And uh, the first person that we had been referred was this boy who was a young teenager, and he was already uh, in a residential program at the NIH. So he was living in a locked clinical ward in the in the giant research hospital at the heart of the NIH. And he had been referred into a different study. And then they realized in the process of working with him that he was a much better fit for ours because he had uh, persistent, really terrifying amounts of aggression, you know, temper tantrums where he would lash out and try to really viciously hurt his family, including his siblings. Um, and make threats about burning the house down while his family slept, that sort of thing. And then he also had some pretty um, unusual behaviors, like he would um, smear his own feces on the wall when he was uh, locked in a room to try to keep him out of trouble. Um, that was the the sort of the most, I thought, in some ways troubling thing that he was doing, because it suggested that it was something about him was really out of the normal bounds. And so... When we were first going to meet him, we had had lots of preparation on how to work with um, potentially violent research subjects. And again, he was a young teenager, but he was, you know, tall, um, as many boys that age are. And we had the basic list of things that we should do, like you don't bring anything sharp into the room with you and make sure that you don't let the subject get your, between yourself and the door, um, basic things like that. But it was... Um, still, we were nervous. Um, you know, I, I had in my mind the images I'm sure lots of people have about, you know, psychiatric hospitals, like one flew over the cuckoo's nest or, you know, violent offenders like Hannibal Lecter. And um, I knew that he wasn't going to be restrained or anything like that. He wasn't out of control in that way, but um, we were nervous. And so what greeted us when we actually walked into his room for the first time was a real surprise. He uh, was waiting for us, sitting on his bed, perched on his little bed in this sort of cute little room. And it looked like he'd walked off the set of a cereal commercial. He was so cute. 
and had a kind of a sweet kind of aw shucks manner about him. And he stood up and shook our hands and said, nice to meet you. And we had a very lovely conversation with him. You know, you would never have guessed from talking to him the sorts of things that he was doing in his real life at home. Uh, and it was that that paradox of this very um, normal or even super normal demeanor and appearance uh, coupled with these really deep internal deficits that is the hallmark of psychopathy. And yeah, so that's the common sort of presentation. And how is it that they are able to, you know, essentially come off as totally genuine and authentic and, you know, warm and, um, you know, all the things that they're not supposed to be? Uh, Because we think that psychopathy is really a manifestation of pretty limited um, abnormalities in the brain. So it, for the most part, people who are psychopathic are normal. You know, most regions of their brain, most networks in their brain are functioning more or less normally. Um, I should add that there are people for whom they have the, the hallmarks of psychopathy plus other deficits elsewhere in the brain. And then that's when you get the really out of control behavior. But for people who are the more kind of classic psychopathic person like this boy, you know, for the most part, he, he could function very well in most domains. Um, but the, the thing that he seemed to be missing was a, a sense of caring about when other people are suffering. There seem to be a few regions of the brain, like the amygdala, uh, that are necessary for responding to other people's fear and distress and suffering somewhat more broadly. And when those things are not working, you actually can do pretty well most of the time, except when it comes to making decisions about causing other people's suffering or responding when other people actually are suffering. And that's where they really um, are incredibly different from those people. So if you have a, you know, I guess we use sometimes the term neurotypical, I don't know, you know, or healthy brain, um, what is your reaction to, you know, watching somebody suffer? Is that is that what would be your kind of brain imaging test of whether a person is is in the in the sort of healthy range or outside of it? Well, I should um, say that we can't diagnose anybody with a mental illness yet based on a brain scan um, for a lot of reasons. Uh, And so the brain scans that we do was exactly what you say. We would show them pictures of people who felt afraid and see if the structure in the brain, the amygdala, responds, um, which it does in most people. That said, there's still a lot of variation among people who are psychopathic and who are healthy. And so um, it's not like we can make a diagnosis on the basis of a brain scan. Um, But we do know that as a group, people who are psychopathic show much lower responsiveness to the sight of other people suffering or the sound of other people suffering than the average person does. Um, And that said, we only view that as a problem when it's coupled with really problematic behavior. It's the behavior Mm -hmm. that, that makes them mentally ill, not the brain imaging scan. Yeah. So if you if you took like a thousand people and you'd, you'd have a kind of normal distribution of, you know, some people have a little bit more, some people have a little bit less, you know, of activation as they're looking at these stimuli, would individuals who tend to have uh, psychopathy really cluster at one end or do they have their own distribution where like, are they kind of off that spectrum? Um, I would say they cluster at one end. They're at the, the, you know, the low end of the distribution, but very low, right? The, the ones that we studied, the children that we brought in, showed no amygdala activation on average to the fearful expressions we showed them. 
Yeah. So, you know, there's your floor effect doesn't get any less <laughs> activation than that, I guess. <laughs> so so what does that mean? You know, the amygdala is, you know, it's it's a series of a number of nuclei. You know, we think they have somewhat different functions. We also think that, you know, the amygdala, we know the amygdala is involved in a lot of different emotions, not just fear, um, although that's been sort of the best studied. Um, so what do you think it, it is? Is it is it like that they have just wired the amygdala differently to the rest of the brain when they're processing emotions and, and fear in particular doesn't drive it. But do you see other emotions driving it? Um, or do you think it's a, it's a sort of anatomical thing where their amygdalas are just small? Well, we know that they're small. So that's definitely true. Um, there have been a number of studies in both kids and adults showing that amygdala volume in psychopathic kids is, is pretty dramatically decreased. But what that reflects is still not that clear. Uh, you know, the amygdala, as you say, is made up of lots of different parts, and those parts have, you know, lots of structures within them. You know, it, it, are we talking about, I don't know, like different dendritic structure on the neurons or something? We don't know. Uh, or maybe we're talking about different, I don't know, uh, it could just be wrong number of neurons and different um, nuclei. Um, probably, I would say the best guess. Uh, is that for some developmental reason that we're still working on trying to figure out, uh, the amygdala is too small. And so the functions that it's supposed to perform, it just can't perform as robustly. And although it's true that the amygdala is involved in a variety of different emotional responses, it's not necessary for most kinds of emotional responses. Um, we know from people who have amygdala uh, lesions that are um, genetic or a result of accidents, that they still can experience emotions like excitement and happiness and disgust and anger. Um, the only one that you really lose if your amygdala is not functioning is fear. Um, and that is due to what's going on in the central nucleus of the amygdala, um, which really does direct the body and the rest of the brain to respond in this characteristic pattern of ways in response to anticipated threats. And um, I think what's going on is that people who are psychopathic, because they can't rally the troops in the brain to engage in that cascade of things that should happen when you're confronted with a threat, uh, they also are not able to mentally simulate what somebody else who is frightened is experiencing. Uh, we think that that is how people empathize with others, is you create an internal simulation of what their state is, whether it's pain or fear or disgust or whatever. Um, and that allows you to identify what they're feeling and generate an appropriate response. And so um, the best evidence, I think, suggests that people who are psychopathic literally have trouble understanding what other people's fearful expressions mean. What, what does it mean to feel afraid? They They don't really experience that state very strongly. Uh, at least people who are so-called primary psychopaths. And so they don't respond appropriately when they're confronted with other people who are fearful. So what is the prognosis for a child that, you know, scores high on a psychopath, psychopathy, psycho psychopathic checklist, uh, uh, and shows some of these disturbing behaviors, and then you see, you know, these uh, amygdala dysfunctions? What what's what is the What is the sort of, like, can we treat them? Can we, are there things that we can do to help the, their brains develop? Or, you know, what is their prognosis? Um, in general, the prognosis tends to be not great. Um, there are no dedicated treatments for psychopathy. There are people working on them, although not nearly enough, because um, psychopathy, maybe not totally surprisingly, does not get a whole lot of 
federal research dollars going to address it, unfortunately. Um, and if you look at how um, prevalent and serious a diagnosis of conduct disorder is among children, you know, maybe 10% of kids get a diagnosis of conduct disorder at some point. Um, the resources that are spent trying to treat kids who have this disorder are ridiculously small. So anyways, so we, we, we would have made more progress at this point if there was actually money for it, but that's another issue. Um, the, so no, we don't have any dedicated treatments for the subset of kids with conduct disorder who are psychopathic. Um, there are efforts at doing some sort of basic behavioral training, which we know is generally good at, at modifying behavior, um, which can be effective. Um, generally it's most effective for kids who are identified earlier. So the later you catch kids, the less effective these treatments are. Um, and the less severely affected they are to start with. And then also the more kind of motivated their parents are to really be serious and dedicated about the behavior modification because parents have to be partners in these sorts of treatments. Um, and even then, you know, sometimes it doesn't work. But but there are cases of kids who who seem to be having horrible behavior problems on psychopathy when they're young, and then and then they do get better as time goes on. Although at, at the moment, it's it's not very easy to predict who that's going to be. So what were you know what happened to some of the kids that you interviewed, you know, or or that you tested in those first imaging studies when you were a postdoc? Um, do they then end up having to live a life under, you know, lock and key? Can they enter back into society? And, you know, who makes those, just those decisions and uh, on what basis? Well, they don't, um, you know, in the society right now, we still don't lock people up on the basis of future crimes. So as long as they, you know, for any crimes that they do commit, fulfill their detention, whatever it was that they were required to do, you know, they might go on to be part of society again. And in some cases, they do learn to um, control their behavior well enough to avoid um, getting in trouble with the law. Um, we didn't, you know, follow many of the kids that we were studying. We lost many of them to detention. So we'd be studying a child who was in the community. We'd bring him in for a brain scan, call them back three months later, see if they want another one. Oh, you know, they're in detention. And so we weren't able to follow them. Um, a number of the girls we lost to early pregnancies, uh, lost meaning we weren't able to work with them anymore. Um, and um, and then, you know, uh, how they're doing as adults, I, I wish I knew. Uh, some of the kids I've worked with here at Georgetown, we've followed up a little bit uh, years later. And in general, uh, life outcomes have not been great for the ones that we've worked with. Uh, they've tended to have, you know, not great educational outcomes, difficult career outcomes. Some of them have ended up in detention or in jail more than months. That's hard. And is there uh, a relatively even split between, um, you know, boys and girls? And and does that does that trend up into adulthood as well? Like if you, you know, if you... And, and I guess the question is, and, and what do we know about how many people have psychopathy in adulthood? Because probably they don't sign up for studies that often. <laughs> it's very hard to recruit them because you can't put on a poster, are you a psychopath? If so, here, call this number. Um, not You can't count on somebody who is psychopathic having the insight about themselves that that is a good description of them. Um, and certainly, you know, we don't recruit like that ever. We ask about whether children have serious behavior problems and do they not feel guilty after they do something wrong? And that's um, a pretty good short description. In response to your question, so the, the gender breakdown, it tends to be more boys than girls, although not, you know, so dramatically, maybe two thirds boys, one third girls in the studies that we do. 
Um, partly that's a strange fluke of how the scales that assess psychopathy were developed. They were de originally developed in men. And so the further away you get from the male prison populations that were used to develop the original psychopathy scales, the bigger drop-off you see. But it's not clear if that's because um, you know, children and girls are less psychopathic or it's because the psychopathy expresses itself in different behaviors that aren't captured using those measures. And then in terms of how many uh, adults are psychopathic in the population, the estimate of how many would actually be considered a, quote, psychopath using the standard instrument called the PCLR uh, is about one or two percent in the U.S. So one in somewhere between 50 to 100 people, which is a lot of people, That's, right? Everybody knows yeah. at least one psychopathic person, everybody, because, you know, no matter who I'm talking to, if I first described it, because everybody has their stereotype of what a psychopath is. And they usually think like Hannibal Lecter, which is not even close to what a typical psychopathic person is like. And when I start describing, well, this is what people who are psychopathic are actually like, everybody to a person would be like, oh, yeah, I know somebody like that. I just never had a word for it before. Yeah. So describe to us what, what is the typical presentation of an adult uh, psychopath? So they just consistently engage in behavior that hurts other people, whether it's, you know, it's not always physical damage, but that causes other people to really experience significant loss or suffering. So they're always conning people and um, getting stuff out of them that's not fair, manipulating them into doing things, lying all the time. Um, and just there's no sense of remorse or, or being troubled by doing things that damage other people's welfare. And it, it's just constant, right? It, there's no, it's not like one thing and they're otherwise a really nice, generous, compassionate person. And oftentimes you don't see it initially because people who are psychopathic or um, at least the sort of quintessential psychopathic person is uh, often very charming and charismatic and easy to talk to and friendly and makes friends very easily um, because they seem to be a lot of fun and very interesting. Um, and it's only after a little while goes by that you start recognizing this pattern of behavior. And so, you know, in your book, you talk about fear and, and the role that fear has. We, we talked a little bit about, you know, recognizing fear in others as, as being something that you need a good amygdala for, and that that seems to be what's awry in these children. Is, is that the same thing that, that is awry in adult psychopaths? And if so, I mean, it, it seems like, you know, a fairly simple, you know, the, the this other side of it, I guess, that I don't understand is why they continue to, you know, poke at that at other people why you know yeah so i would say that the thing that's i find interesting and it has been interesting about working with people at both ends of the the caring continuum you know people at the very low end and people at the very high end is that you know most of us are kind of in the middle you know we're not sometimes we can do things that aren't the nicest things but we but we do feel genuine care and compassion for other people and so it's easy for us to understand most people because they're mostly more or less like us because that's how normal distributions work um, but then when it gets to the real ends, the tails of the distribution, where people seem to have really different internal responses to the same events, is when we really have trouble, we really struggle trying to understand what is going on inside. And so I think it's just difficult for most people to understand what it's like to really not care about other people's suffering. Like, you really don't care. Um, it doesn't bother you. You don't understand why other people would care. Um, people who are psychopathic, they're not, they can be sadistic, although that's kind of its own thing, but it's not like they're usually like aiming to cause other people suffering. It's mostly that they want what they want. And if they need to do something that'll hurt somebody else to get there, well, okay, that's just the way it is. And wouldn't anybody do that? Right. I think 
that's the interesting thing too, is that most people sort of understand the world through their own experiences. And so it's just hard for the average person to understand what, it, like how a person could genuinely not care about hurting other people. Uh, but if you don't, you know, if that's what you have to do to get whatever it is you want, whether it's money or status or any other kind of resource, you know, just do it. And it sounds to me like different societies would have different amounts of punishment or reward for individuals like that. So, you know, in the U.S., where we're a very capitalistic, individualistic society, you know, with uh, all the things that are going on in our government, the decisions that are being made, it sounds like psychopaths would actually do fairly well. Um, But maybe in another society where there's a bigger emphasis on the collective, on, you know, belonging to a group and, you know, that sort of burns bridges, they don't. So is there any evidence of sort of uh, trends of psychopathic behavior being more prominent in one culture or society than another? Uh, there, there is uh, some evidence that, that psychopathy is more prevalent in the U.S. than in Europe, uh, for example, and those are where it's been studied the most. And, you know, why that is is a great question. And again, because people who are psychopathic often can succeed in fields that reward charisma and risk-taking, at least initially. But often they don't do that well in the long run. So there was a cool study that just came out recently looking at traders on Wall Street and found that people who are psychopathic tend to do worse in the long run, mostly because they end up taking silly risks and uh, and getting punished for it financially, um, which comes back to how useful an emotion of fear is. It mostly keeps us out of trouble and keeps us from losing important things like money. You know, I've, I read an interesting theory at one point about why uh, you know people in the U.S. might be different in terms of certain personality traits in general than people in Europe. Uh, For example, that for the most part, we are a country of immigrants and the ancestors of everybody who came here, you know, even if you go far enough back, the Native Americans, you know, migrated here from somewhere else. And it takes a certain kind of disposition to want to leave your homeland and to leave your family and everything and everyone you've ever known. And so maybe there's an unusual sort of high proportion of people in the U.S. whose ancestors are, you know, a little more risk-taking, a little less um, concerned about leaving friends and family forever. It's it's merely a hypothesis, but I thought it was a really interesting one. And so is there a genetic basis to, is there some hereditary factors that are in, 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 uh, that in view in psychopathy? Oh, sure. So a good rule of thumb is that every human personality trait, and really every human trait in general, but for sure when it comes to psychological traits, is roughly 50% heritable. Uh, There was a huge study that came out in Nature Genetics last year that looked at um, behavior genetic studies uh, over the last 50 years or something, uh, hundreds of thousands of twin pairs. And on average, most uh, personality traits in humans are roughly 50% heritable. So about half of the variation is associated with genetic variation, um, which is, you know, that's substantial, uh, but it's not anywhere near 100%. And so, of course, there are life experiences, mostly sort of idiosyncratic life experiences that also seem to contribute. And is that true on the other end, too? So, you know, I want to, you know, move a little bit to talk about people who care almost too much, who will put themselves at harm in order to help others, which after all is is one of the things that you talk about is that got you interested in this line of work, um, is, is observing sort of real pure altruism. Um, so does that also run in families? That's a great question. Um, I wouldn't say in any sort of simple way, and the same is true for psychopathy. You know, it's not like there's a gene for psychopathy or really almost anything else. Um 
But uh, the the very few studies on the topic that have been done suggest that there probably is a genetic basis for altruism as well. There was one study that showed that it's roughly 50% heritable also, um, which I thought was pretty interesting, um, although it's just one study. Um, yeah, I think uh, there's every likelihood that there is a genetic basis for it, at least in part. And so what about the brain basis? Uh, what What do we know about people who are, you know, incredibly, I mean, and how would you, how would you define an altruist? Is it about like compassion? Is it about behaviors? You know, let's, let's, if we don't have a, we don't have a, do we have an altruism checklist the way we do for psychopathy? (laughs) That's a great idea. I shouldn't do that. Um, So altruism is, is uh, any behavior that is intended to benefit somebody other than the actor. And that's a, a definition that that I think most people would agree on. Um, the difficulty is in trying to really nail down the intention for almost any human behavior, uh, because people can often behave very kindly and generously towards one another for a variety of reasons. Um, some of which are just you know wanting to adhere to social norms, right? Why do you hold the door open for the person coming in the building behind you? Is it because you you know care about their welfare? Is it just because it's habit, or you know that that's what you're supposed to do? Um, you know, maybe they're an attractive person and you're, and you're, you know, trying to, um, please them. There are so many reasons for any human behavior that it it can be difficult to know for sure when a behavior is altruistic. And that's one of the reasons that I've been studying people who engage in acts of what I call extraordinary altruism, because it's behavior that is, uh, requires real risks and sacrifices on the part of the altruist to help a stranger, an anonymous stranger that the altruist has never met, which really limits the number of possible explanations for why um, the altruist did what they did. And so I've been studying altruistic kidney donors who have given a kidney to a stranger. And, um, you know, obviously giving away one of your own kidneys to somebody that you've never met and may never meet is a really extraordinary behavior, uh, you know, both in the sense that it's just incredibly rare um, although not as rare as people think, um, maybe a hundred or 200 people a year do so. And also it, it's, it's essentially impossible to think of it as anything other than altruistically motivated. And in fact, most kidney donors, if you ask them, why did you donate a kidney? It's because they wanted to help somebody who was suffering. Uh, what's interesting about the people that we've studied, these extraordinarily altruistic people is that we have found that in uh, a number of ways, they look sort of like anti-psychopaths. Their brains uh, are different. So whereas people who are psychopathic have amygdalas that are smaller than average and less responsive to other people's fear, people who are very altruistic have amygdalas that are larger than average and more responsive to other people's fear. And they're better at recognizing other people's fear as well. Hmm. And what else can you tell us about people who have this exceptional altruism? Well, uh, one of the things I think is so interesting about them is that they don't you know, neatly fit into any other category. They, they're men and women. The ones that we have worked with are all different ages. They tend to cluster in their forties and fifties, but we've had some who were as young as 18. Uh, and many people, uh, have donated kidneys who were in their sixties or even seventies. Um, and they come from all over the country. So they're not really a homogenous group of people at all. But, uh, what I think is the most possibly surprising about them is how not surprising to them it is to want to give a kidney to somebody who's going to die without it. Um, They mostly have said that when they heard about the need for donor kidneys and how many people are on the waiting list and that, you know, many of the people on the waiting list will die waiting. It was just 
essentially an instant reaction of, well, I can do that. I've got two kidneys. I'll give one up. And they don't view that as a surprising response at all. In fact, they think that the response that needs explaining is why you wouldn't donate your kidney having all that information. And do they, from your uh, sample of individuals who did this, did, did they show altruism in other aspects of their lives that you were able to track or study or ask about? Yeah, a lot of the time. Um, and not all the same thing, but um, nearly all of them are longtime blood donors, despite the fact that a number of them that we've worked with have, are very phobic of needles and, in fact, often will pass out when they're donating blood, but they do it anyways. Uh, a number of them have donated uh, bone marrow or, or at least signed up to donate bone marrow. A uh, few even donated a piece of their liver as well. Um, and then a number of them do sort of volunteer work and charitable work or humanitarian work as well. Um, and I should add that the kind of altruism they tend to engage in is sort of direct responses to people who are suffering or in need or in distress, uh, not so much the sort of more socially normative altruism that is sort of the everyday behavior that most people um, engage in because they've learned to and they know that it's what you're supposed to do. They're not any more likely than anybody else to do that kind of behavior. So we've been talking about how, you know, recognizing fear and sort of empathizing with distress and others can have, you know, this normal distribution, but on either end, uh, there's psychopathy on one side, extreme altruism on the other. But for most people, fear is an emotion that we try avo to avoid feeling <laughs> rather than recognizing in others. And of course, you know, there's there's there are lots of people who are affected by anxiety disorders and other ways in which, you know, the fear has gone out of control. Um, so is is that is is that sort of the specifics of, you know, your work is, is sort of looking at how we recognize fear in others? Or, you know, does some of your work also touch on the fact that um, people differ in their in how much fear they f have in their own lives in terms of what they're feeling? Well, you know, I'm the, the first to agree that anxiety disorders are not something that we want more of, um, you know, having severe phobias or PTSD or some other kind of maladaptive fear response isn't a good thing. Uh, but the, the fact that we can experience fear and have a healthy fear response is uh, an incredibly powerful and important thing. And um, I think especially in the U.S., we have a tendency to sort of view life as an ongoing quest to maximize positive emotion and minimize negative emotion. And so fear as a, you know, quote unquote, negative emotion must be just a bad thing. Um, but that is somewhat uniquely American. That's not a, a worldwide thing. Um, and I think it's, it's important to sort of recognize the fact that we have all of these emotions and they are these very deeply rooted biological phenomena. Uh, is because they're really important and useful. And the research I've done and other people have done shows that people who don't have robust fear responses uh, have all kinds of problems from getting into risky situations that get them in a huge amount of trouble uh, to being unable to understand when other people are feeling fear, which leads to all kinds of negative social consequences. So there's one question that um, I'm almost ashamed to ask because <laughs> it's just kind of ridiculous. Um, but, you know, we're nearing the end of the interview. And so this is the appropriate time. We might have lost a few listeners. Um, so um, so when I think about amygdala damage, the first thing that always comes to my head is uh, toxoplasma gondii, which is the... <laughs> The parasite that uh, lives, uh, that can be, you know, whose eggs can be found in the feces of cats and uh, mice who ingest this parasite essentially become zombies. They they get amygdala damage and they lose their fear of things like cats, which is good good for the cat, right? <laughs> 
Right. This parasite hijacks their fear response, I think, to cats in particular and makes them very um they they some they instead of fearing the smell of a cat as like cat urine for example they they come to seek it out in a very weird way yeah which is good for the cats good for the parasite because it gets to go back to the cat um but you know people have cats <laughs> and uh <laughs> even though you know for the most of us if we're not immune compromised like being pregnant or you know having hiv then toxoplasma gondii is not in any way a life-threatening problem um but, uh, you know, does it, does, does, is there any evidence? Okay, I'm just going to ask. Do cat lovers have, are they psychopaths because their amygdalas are damaged? Well, there's always Dr. Evil. So I suppose there's, there's case one. No, um, you know, the evidence on how toxoplasmosis affects humans is mixed. There is some interesting evidence out there that even a toxoplasmosis infection in adulthood can cause some very odd behavior. But I wouldn't say that it has any sort of amygdala-specific effect. Um, and we do know that uh, a toxoplasmosis infection when a woman is pregnant can obviously lead to serious problems in the baby like uh, schizophrenia. Um, but it, no, it doesn't seem to affect the human amygdala in a specific way. So probably, probably not. I think I'm a cat owner and lover myself. And, um, uh, I think cat owners can rest easy. So what's the one thing that you want our audience to sort of take away, uh, from your research, uh, both uh, on both sides of the spectrum of, of sort of compassion, which is, I guess, uh, what we're really talking about here. Right. Um, the, I, the one thing that I wish more people knew is that there's this really sort of paradoxically bright side to the study of psychopathy, which is and it's something that it took me a couple of years to realize, which is that the fact that we have this thing called psychopathy, the characteristic feature of which is being callous and not caring about other people's suffering, means by definition that the average person is truly capable of care and compassion for other people because then otherwise we wouldn't set apart this one group of people who's not. And so it really has reinforced for me how caring and compassionate the the average person is really able to be. Um, It's really sort of a lovely message about human nature. And you do talk about one way in which we can all increase our compassion, at least many of us can, that seems to be scientifically validated. Yeah. Uh, are you talking about compassion meditation, I assume? Yes. Yeah. That, that probably the best evidence at this point for if somebody wants to increase their own amount of compassion is compassion or love and kindness meditation, which are sort of similar. Um, and there's pretty good empirical evidence at this point that they work. And it's not that surprising that they work because what they are is just compassion boot camp. You're practicing, experiencing compassion for ever widening circles of other people. Um, and we know that, you know, engaging in caring behavior and experiencing the rewards of engaging in care and compassion tends to lead to a sort of virtuous uh, circle. And so uh, anything you do to engage in more compassion should be kind of an upward spiral. But we haven't seen any evidence that it might change some of the neuroanatomical or functional uh, deficits in people who are psychopaths. Um, no, that has never been tried to the best of my knowledge, um, in part because there's a there's a little bit of a motivation problem in people who are psychopathic, which is that they don't view themselves as having a problem to start with. Um, and so you have to be at least motivated to become more compassionate um, in order to b- become so. But for the rest of us, it can be very useful. So I want to remind our listeners that uh, Abigail Marsh's book, The Fear Factor, How One Emotion Connects Altruists, Psychopaths, and Everyone in Between is available at booksellers everywhere. Abby Marsh, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. Thank you so much for having me. 
I'm left with a one kind of a big question, I guess, is is the neurodevelopment, like the size of the amygdala, development of the amygdala driving the behavior, or is the behavior driving the development like we have a weird chicken and egg situation to me yeah it's really it's really hard to answer that question i mean a lot of people think well look if we take volume measures of uh, structure like the amygdala and we we find that in people who score high on a psychopath uh, checklist they have smaller amygdala or their amygdalas don't activate as much uh, to certain stimuli that means that that is driving the behavior um and you know these kinds of neuroimaging techniques are correlational. They're not causational. And we don't know whether just a, a constant behavior of ignoring those cues actually leads to a less developed amygdala in a child, for example, or if there's, you know, it's probably a combination of something in terms of, you know, some genetic environment interaction that leads to the wiring of the amygdala being different, and therefore, you know, reacting differently. And, you know, so this is a way in which experience can shape uh, even this structural, these structural differences. Um, so, uh, you know, the, the, the truth is, I don't think we have a, a full answer to that question yet, um, but I think that it's something that neuroscientists have to really worry about now and that the tools that we're going to develop in the future are going to be better designed at answering those questions. I, I'm going to make a leap here. So audience, stay with me. Because we're talking about childhood development in a lot of these cases, I've always wondered what the impact of screens in these situations are around this issue, especially around emotional development and the ability to actually understand the feelings that are being developed by another real human being, because that's much, much harder to get just by seeing a representation of a human on a video screen. Yeah. And, you know, this is a topic that's ripe for research. And there are researchers out there that come out with recommendations and come out with uh, data suggesting that, yes, in fact, screens are very bad for children's development in a number of different ways. Um, but those studies are are hard. Uh, and I'll tell you why. You know, no child's screen you know, how do you, how do you measure screen time? Is it like which exactly which shows you watch? Because screen time can be uh, completely passive. It can be active. It can be with people in the room. And all of these things, I think, matter. Yeah, no one's signing up for a study where their kid is going to be on a screen 10 hours a day <laughs> for 15 years. Uh, but it poses like a larger question about trends here. Mm -hmm. and I, And I think that's what I'm left with. Are we just getting really a lot better at identifying nuance of psychopathic behavior as it develops? Or are we actually seeing a trend where more psychopathic behaviors developing in this society. I mean, I didn't get the sense at all that that was the case, that in fact, we're finding more children who are scoring high on the checklist. In fact, uh, Abby was, you know, saying, as, as she mentioned, that it's actually really hard to find subjects for her studies. So it's this not is a like, good thing. Yeah, it's not like there are, you know, I mean, it could be, again, as she mentioned, that parents just don't want to, you know, they have enough to deal with if they have a child who has a conduct disorder. Um, but, you know, at the same time, it doesn't seem like this is a, something that happens to one out of 20 kids, you know, in the average population, and that, and that it's something that is growing. Um, whereas certainly, screen use has changed over the last few years. So if there was a direct correlation between, you know, antisocial behavior and screen use, you would expect to see a lot more antisocial kids. And, you know, people will tell you, yeah, you know, I take the bus and I see all these kids who are plugged into their phones and they're much more antisocial. But, you know, <laughs> I don't know that that's necessarily the case. You also see that these kids are texting each other and are very social in terms of their interactions with the screens. So 
lots of answers still to find out. And in fact, um, I am working on uh, a series of of uh, of conversations with people who study this very issue. And, and it's taking me some time because I don't just want to interview one expert who has, you know, a couple of studies and, and one particular viewpoint, uh, because the question is so complex. And, you know, so anyway, more more to come in 2018. Well, after this set of holidays, I'm definitely taking a break from any social behavior. <laughs> Well, here's to all of you. May you all experience and behave in exceptionally altruistic ways. That's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Clark Lindgren, Stefan Meyer Awald, Michael Galgool, Kyle Rihala, Joel, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, Jordan Millar, Herring Chen, Sean Johnson, and Nick Cadillac. You can visit our website at inquiring.show and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas or anything else you'd like. Christmas cookies or other holiday cookies fully appreciated to contact at inquiring.show. I guess don't send cookies via email. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with many media outlets. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Chian. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. The University of California Press thanks you for listening to this episode of Inquiring Minds. Look for Grand Canyon for Sale by Stephen Nash, available now at a bookstore near you. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.